Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So yeah, I was cooking a few things from the book. Uh, some of them it was very strange, very alien. So I was like, yes, yes, that sounds completely bonkers. Let's do this. <laughs> That's part of the charm, I think, is that um, it's almost an archaeological excavation of a recipe. It's kind of trying to find out what um, what some of the meanings. I guess we'll talk about that in a bit because with Epicius, there's kind of so much of it is left to the chef or the cook. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, the first thing that struck me as uh, interesting that, you know, it's <laughs> you have a lot of freedom to maneuver around um, quantities and the ingredients. Who was Apicius? Was he a real person from Imperial Rome called Marcus Gavius Apicius? Or was just a cookbook, a man or a legend? Was he a notorious gourmet, an aristocrat, a member of the Roman elite? This great question I tried to resolve with the help of um, Andrew Kenrick, who came into the podcast to discuss about his thesis, The Life of Marcus Gavius Apicius, Rome's most infamous gourmand. I originally released this episode uh, more or less um, four years ago in two parts. So, welcome to this rerun where I include everything in one episode uh, with new editing and a new introduction and, um, of course, some extra information about Apicius. Or Apicius, depends how you want to call him. It's very tantalizing to think about this book, about the Apicius cookery book from ancient Rome, because we think it's been written around the 1st to 3rd centuries um, AD, but the earliest surviving copies we have is about 9th or 10th century AD. And the language is uh, vulgar um, Latin. And um, all these questions arise. When was it written? From whom? And why? To who it was um, a helpful manual to? And of course, um, pondering all these questions, we ponder the who was this legendary man. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this uh, rerun of uh, an amazing episode uh, that I did a few years back uh, deep in the pandemic, in the first year of the pandemic. And um, I just wanted to re-release this one with a few extra stuff. And um, welcome to the Delicious Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Dinas, and let's get on with our subject. 
One of the most important things to consider here is the fact that the book itself is not a cookbook as we think of it today, or at least the last um, 300 years, where we have the character of a person coming out, giving us instructions, telling us about how they cook, how they present the dish, with clear instructions and step-by-step guide and cooking methods, and of course, um, quantities of ingredients. Cooks back in ancient Rome and ancient Greece were skilled slaves who labored generally to produce what the elite consumed. So there was a very clear separation of the production and the consumption of this uh, high-status food. The book itself, in reality, it's just a mere reference to the author Apicius, if it ever existed. And of course we think it's going to be more than one people writing these recipes and um, enriching this manual, this cooking manual. The recipes are usually very short and they talk about ingredients A, B, C and put them on X, Y and cook them Z. Very laconic in a way. And for most of the recipes, the ingredients themselves don't have quantities, they don't specify quantities. So basically it's in a sense of how the cook wants to interpret this recipe and how their master wants to eat it. So it depends on their preferences and being experienced cooks, they adjust all the time on how much of ingredient A and ingredient B they will use. Um, so I had a very fascinating discussion with um, Andrew about uh, Apicius. Uh, Andrew Kenrick is um, from University of East Anglia. And um, basically, we talked about uh, dining in ancient Rome at the time of Apicius, recipes from the book, what we cooked, what we love from ancient recipes, why we cook those recipes, and um, (laughs) the whole life adventures of uh, Marcus Gavius Apicius. Of course, the Apician uh, recipe book, it existed in um, a time and a place which the Roman Empire was quite expansive, covered most of the Mediterranean, if not all. North Africa, Italy, Spain, Greece, Turkey were the main parts of its influence. So a lot of ingredients come from this core area. Of course, we have uh, the expensive spices and the more exotic ingredients also mentioned in many recipes. But we also need to understand, apart from the place the recipes take uh, place, um, the Roman way of um, eating, how they worked, lived, and how they dined, what was the dining etiquette. In the imperial Rome, in the time of the Roman Empire, Empire, in Rome itself, the day begins at dawn and the average Roman dresses, goes um, to have a scratch meal for breakfast, which is usually the barest minimum, water and a piece of bread or cold leftovers from the night before. The hour, the Roman hour fluctuates according to the seasons and um, generally the, the day's labor did not extend beyond seven hours in the summer and probably six in the winter. Lunch for the non-laboring classes was uh, as with breakfast, a snatched meal of leftovers, like cheese, fruit, bread, and simple single items involving the minimum of cooking. The whole gourmet experience was uh, more of an evening thing, an evening meal, the senna. And uh, this um, had um, like three different tables in, its, in itself, three different uh, courses, which we'll uh, uh, explore in the podcast. For the time being, I'm just going to say that the Senna itself was a very formal meal with a set number of courses. Um, and of course, the number of dishes within its course would vary, uh, could be limitless in a sense. The meal will begin with a drink, something like honeyed wine, 
uh, mulsum, which is a mixture of wine and honey rather than mead, or a conditum, as uh, I've mentioned many times, a spiced wine, usually using pepper, black pepper, which was expensive and provided high status, and sometimes dates and saffron. There were eggs and nuts, and eggs typically were part of the gustatio, the first course, or gustatio, the first course. Small appetizers to stimulate the palate, and um, then you have you know salad, olive, bread, tuna, meatballs, selfish, all with some kind of dipping sauces. Then there was the mensai premai, the first tables, comprised the impressive main courses of the meal, roasted joints of meat and poultry, whole stuffed piglet, lamb or kid, whole baked fish, uh, stews, and so many other. The list basically is uh, massive and endless in a sense. And then you have the mensai secundai, or second tables, or dessert, as we would think of it, which is fairly simple items such as fruit, uh, nuts, and sometimes honey cheesecakes. And in Apicius we find a few dessert recipes, uh, and these were largely explained by the fact that uh, baked goods um, tended to be seen as uh, within a separate literary form itself. So the cookbook of Apicius, the collection of recipes there, was a literary cookbook, uh, and this separation of sweet and savory shouldn't necessarily apply. An interesting fact um, about Apicius' cookbook is that, is that um, it contains more recipes for pig than for any other meat. And we guess it could be its favorite or it was the most popular meat in ancient Rome or something that was more readily available and versatile ingredient. Certainly in Rome itself, where the government subsidies made the meat more affordable than anywhere in Italy, pig was probably more one of the most popular ones. Then... Um, Aside from pork, wild boar was seen as the meat to serve for aspiring members of the upper classes. And there are, again, there are a few recipes in Apicius for wild boar. So the, there is this recipe for a Vitellian piglet, which goes like this. Dress the piglet like a boar, sprinkle with salt and roast in the oven with onions. Put in a mortar, pepper, lavage, pour on liquamen, flavor with wine and passum. Bring it to heat in a pan, with a tiny amount of oil. Drizzle the sauce over the roasted piglet so that the sauce seeps beneath the skin. A nice appetizer, I suppose, would be Ophelai Apician style, which is um, like um, meatballs or something like that. So if you get um, a kilo of pork belly, a generous amount of ground, uh, freshly ground black pepper, cumin seeds, about two tablespoons, half a teaspoon of lavage seeds. If you don't find, use a mixture of... Um, something like um, uh, celery seeds, one level teaspoon ground ginger, about 150 milligrams of uh, passum, and some uh, 60 ml of fish sauce, and about uh, two tablespoons of olive oil. So cut this in um, cubes, three centimeters square, and then put in the roasting, roasting tin, sprinkle it with the olive oil, roast in medium heat, until it's well done and coming away from the skin relatively easily. Roast and grind the spices, put them in a small saucepan with the passum and the fish sauce, add a little oil to the heat, and then take the meat from the oven and cut the individual chunks from the slab. Drop them in the sauce, bring the meat to the boil in the sauce and simmer gently for about 10-15 minutes, or at least most of the sauce has evaporated and you have like a very thick, very sticky remains. Spoon over the meat and sprinkle with black pepper. And for... Um, the third course, the, the more dessert course, something like the deep-fried honey fritters is um, applicable. 
the recipe in Apicius tells about making tells us about making a thick porridge with water or milk and flour. Then you allow it to go cold, and then you cut it uh, into chunks, into cubes, and then you fry it uh, in oil, and then you drizzle honey and pepper. This seems a bit uh, tricky because it kind of becomes very thick glue in a sense. So another way to do it that will cut off this um, difficulty is to think of this recipe as some soup pastry without the egg. Um, so you can add some oil in the into the milk to make the soup pastry, this so-called soup pastry. And this allows the flour and the milk to form uh, a roux rather than glue. So when it, this um, sets into a firm paste, you can cut it into cubes. And this resulting crisp texture, it can uh, be quite good, quite amazing. And it holds its crispness even after the fritters cool in the honey. So use like something like 400 milliliters of goat's or sheep's milk, two tablespoons of olive oil, 100 grams of plain white flour, 100 grams of wholemeal flour. Make sure you sieve it to remove the largest flakes. About 250 ml of olive oil for frying, about 100 grams of runny honey, and a generous amount of freshly ground black pepper. So put the milk in and oil in a pan to heat. Sieve the two flours together and uh, add this mixture to the milk and begin to beat briskly until it forms a mass. Beat continuously and cook out for a few minutes. Then out into a plate, spread it into a disc and allow it to cool completely. Cut approximately 2 cm squares. Put the frying oil in a small pan and heat gently. Put one of these uh, fritters into the oil and when it takes on color, the oil is ready. Keep your temperature medium to low all times. Put in a few fritters at a time depending on the size of the pan. When they have the right golden brown color, release them from the bottom of the pan because they will be sticking a little bit and allow a minute or two for them to cook further before taking them out with a slotted spoon. Drain on kitchen paper and then put in a serving bowl. Pour on honey on them while they're still hot and then stir them, mix the honey so they're all well covered. Of course, as with every Apician <laughs> recipe more or less, uh, sprinkle generously with black pepper and serve immediately. So yeah, welcome to the Delicious Legacy podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Thanks for joining uh, me on this little um, archaeogastronomical adventure, as I like to call them. <laughs> I don't know if that's a term. But <laughs> well, it is now. <laughs> but I like I like it. Um, yeah. So, how did you how did you involved with uh, Apicius? Oh, it's one of these happy coincidences, really, that seems to have shaped my kind of scholarship. Uh, so I was I studied originally studied archaeology and ancient history way back in two, 1999 2000 and then mm. changed careers after that I didn't become an archaeologist I became an editor by a very roundabout route I ended up at, back, back at um, university in 2016 at University of East Anglia doing an MA in uh, creative nonfiction and biography uh, with no intention of uh, using ancient history or drawing on my archaeological interests that was always just a hobby a kind of a passing interest Mm -hmm. And that same year, I took a trip to Rome and visited a, an old colleague, a friend, and she took me out for dinner. And it was the most amazing meal. It was modern Roman cuisine, but it used, it was one of these quirky family restaurants where there was no menu. The, the waiter came and sat at your table and explained what there was. And it was all sorts of things like horse meat and um, mm. uh, glands and bull's balls. 
And yeah. All sorts of things like this. It was very, I'm quite an adventurous eater, but it definitely pushed me to the limit. And I started writing about this uh, for one of my uh, projects. I, I wrote a, an account of this and it's so, uh, two things clicked really, which was, well, what would, you know, how would this modern Roman cuisine, did it bear any relation to ancient Roman cuisine? And it started me uh, kind of researching, but what was ancient Roman cuisine? And you can't really go very far along that line of research without coming across Apicius, who yeah. was this... I guess I was describing him as a Roman celebrity chef. Yeah, yeah. And he became the focus of my attention. So I was fascinated to discover he still had a the, the, a cookbook bearing his name is still in print. And we still have records of his of recipes attributed to him. And it became the sole project um, for my uh, master's. So I ended up writing my dissertation on, on Apicius. Uh, not so much necessarily on Roman cuisine, but on the life of Apicius and how much we can deduce about him from his cookbook. Yeah. And then one thing led to another, and that's that ended up being my, my project. Yeah. And, and uh, in, over the course of it, of course, I ended up cooking his recipes just as a way of trying to get inside yeah. inside uh, his mind. How long did you, it took you to finish that uh, project? That was just for a year, that was. Yeah. And it ended up, it, it was quite self-contained. It ended up being quite a short, self-contained piece of writing, kind of focusing on what we know about at the end of Apicius's life which is he lived quite a, I suppose I should maybe talk about this in more detail, but I should caveat this, but there's a, a, most of what we know about Apicius is speculation and gossip and uh-huh. there's questions about whether he was a real character at all. Really? <laughs> so one, one of the things that, uh, one of the famous things attributed to him is the, that he was a very rich aristocrat, possibly, mm-hmm. in the first century, start of the first century AD. And he famously uh, spent all his fortune on exotic ingredients and throwing fantastic banquets and experimenting with uh, gastronomy. And when he got down to his last 10 or 12 million sesterci, which is about eight or nine million dollars in today's money, uh, he declared that he could not live so frugally and killed himself. So that's kind of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I took kind of took that was the focus the the kind of rise and fall of Apicius yeah and I tried I tried to write a, something that might resemble a biography kind of mm. based on what we know a lot of it ended up being quite speculative because yeah. we don't know a huge amount yeah for sure I mean it's um it's so much stuff to learn and um, find out about the Roman Empire at that time um, absolutely but he's a subject very close to my heart I, I do I do hope to go back to him as a Great. That's a subject, I think. I, I just because I could spend all day writing about Roman food and talking about Roman food, especially yeah. especially Apician Roman food, not necessarily. Mm. I've read your stuff, and yeah, obviously it was really nicely written and um, very interesting. I mean, the detail, as you said, it might not be so real. Or mm. Might be a lot of um, elements there that they're myths, uh, but I mean, it's so fascinating. Yeah, so many things that I didn't know. Basically, that he was friends with the emperors the things that, that, that struck me firstly was that you call him the worst of all gourmands <laughs> i kind of um, laughed with that line <laughs> why the worst just because i think he took it to an extreme really he was um i think he he was one of these extravagant characters who it definitely indulged that kind of horrific grotesquery of overeating Right. So it's the it's just some of the you know the things he would eat. So you think you find in his cookbook. And again, I must caveat the. I guess we'll talk 
talk about this as well. The, yeah. the fact that the cookbook probably wasn't written by him. It was just either piggybacking on his fame because mm. his, his name became a byword for kind of grotesque uh, gourmandery. Yeah. Uh, but the stuff in there like peacock um, tongues and yeah. fl- flamingo tongues and uh, kind of a proto foie gras, where, you know, fig, um, fig fattened pig livers, which they were fattened by stuffing the pig, pig full of figs. Yeah, yeah. And all sorts of kind of omelettes involving all sorts of um, offal and various types of meat all shoved together. It's, yeah, it was all the extravagant weird ingredients thrown all together, basically. Uh, and yeah, okay, okay. I understand now why you call him the worst <laughs> of all Grumans. <laughs> so I guess, was he the first? I mean, I don't think he was the first, but certainly was um, the first extravagant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, he, no, he definitely wasn't the, the, the first. There were the Romans in the first century BC, uh, the Emperor Augustus had to pass a law, um, uh, what, what was called a sumptuary law, which basically limited what people could spend on money because this kind of overeating, this exotic, extravagant dining was getting out of control. So Apicius certainly isn't the first to kind of get carried away with the with his eating. Yeah. Um, but it, he he comes along at quite a interesting time when the republic is just tipping into the empire. Into the empire, you got that change from um, the Roman Empire starts to become the it's spread across the whole of the Mediterranean. It's got a huge amount of provinces under its control. And you've got the rise of the middle classes. So you've got the uh, equestrian order, which was the second of the Roman aristocratic, uh, the kind of lower echelons of the Roman aristocracy with the senators as the kind of upper echelon. The upper, yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, exactly. And that's the, the equestrians were kind of, they were like the middle classes. They were, they'd made their money through uh, big merchants and bankers and, yeah. um, and, and, I guess you still see this today as as middle classes uh, kind of rise up. They develop their own tastes and their own interests in things. Certainly, and Apicius is definitely uh, his his cookbook is kind of pitched at that level. It's it's probably not what the emperors are eating, and it's certainly not what the kind of Roman working classes are eating. But it's what kind of the aspiring middle classes who wanted to show off how extravagant they could be by serving up a platter of yeah, I don't know, fig fattened pig livers or uh, peacock tongues or stuffed dormice or stuff like that. Yeah, all that, um, <laughs> which kind of uh, sound like um, parts of a legend, like no, no, nobody, surely nobody would eat that. But um, well, exactly. I think, yeah. yeah, And and some of the more grotesque elements of Roman cuisine, I think there must be a bit of that about them. They, um, well, surely no one would go to that extent or sh- surely no one would go to that length to, you know, to import, I don't know, a thousand peacocks or... Uh, Hundred thousand flamingos just flamingos, to make this dish. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Apicius. Um, so, yeah, tell uh, tell me a little bit about. Um, it was a real person, apparently. So, uh, yeah, so around he, the first century, right? AD. Yeah. So he 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 crops up in. He's one of these characters who crops up in other the kind of histories of other writers quite often as a. Um, anecdote mm. about how awful um, someone was behaving or so he crops up in Suetonius uh, Pliny the Elder mentions him and there's a, a Seneca uh, says something about him and there's a so there's enough there's enough people that mention him that were kind of maybe near contemporaries that suggest that he existed yeah and he's quite often attributed to these various larger than life stories mm. um, but then there's a couple of there's there's Equally, there's a couple of Apicius's. So there was there's one that crops up in about the third century BC, 
who can't be the same character. And then there's right. another one that comes up a bit later. And it's not entirely clear whether these are all related. If um, the name Apicius is maybe a byword, it certainly becomes a byword for excessive consumption. Mm. Um, and whether it's, but the Romans had as part of their names, their third the third part of the name was often a kind of honorific title. Yes. So it could be that Apicius is, you know, if someone is getting the name Apicius, maybe it means they are a, a famous gourmet. But yeah. we we tend to associate the the Apicius as um, a guy called Marcus Gaius Apicius who, who lived in the... So he's around 31 BC to about 35 AD. Mm. He lives, so in that period where, like I said, the Emperor Augustus, the Emperor Tiberius... Uh, Rome's just becoming an empire from republic, yeah, and things change exactly, a little yes, bit, yeah, yeah exactly. Have. And and so it's quite a quite a period of change. It's it's a time where people can make could make quite a lot of money, and it's presumed that he was probably one of these people who who made quite a bit of money. Um, the two things we know about him, not to say for sure, but the the two stories associated with him are the one about his death, uh, which I mentioned already, and then the one about how he was in possibly his home city of Minturni, which is uh, down towards Naples, towards modern-day Naples. Yeah. And he was feasting on prawns, and someone told him that there was even better prawns um, could be found off the coast of North Africa. Uh, yeah, yeah, tell me about this story. Yeah, I love this story. So he hustled down to the quayside. He commandeered a boat, probably spent vast amounts of money commandeering a boat, and sailed to North Africa, which is probably, a, at this time... A 10 or 12 day journey and mm. quite dangerous seas and then he got there harangued some local fishermen who brought them who probably uh, brought him local prawns and he yeah. realised that actually the prawns from back home were far better and he ordered his <laughs> captain to turn around and sail home again and it's one of these it's probably apocryphal stories but it, it's, it was used by a lot of the Roman writers to, right. you know, to illustrate what a crazy character he was yeah and, and so he comes up in a number of these stories and then quite often in quite almost always sensationalist context. So one of the things that happened in the Roman markets is there were quite often auctions. Um, so in the Roman fish market, so the larger fish would be put up for auction. And the Emperor Tiberius came upon a very large mullet and put it up for auction. And he wa- he had a wager that Either Apicius or one of Apicius's rivals would buy it, and yeah. he was—he was not—he wasn't right about Apicius, but Apicius's rival did buy it. So, so he kind of comes up in these, in the context of these stories, and then right. quite often that's—it's in the context of um, kind of these scandalous stories, um, usually to do with food and overeating. But then there's a couple of a couple of times when he crops up in other scandals that aren't immediately obviously related to food. So he he gets associated with. Uh, Mycenas, who is uh, one of Augustus's kind of lieutenants, who's this kind of another large, another larger than life character who had mm-hmm. a load of a load of the famous poets like Virgil and Horace were his um, kind of students. They were, they were, he was their patron, uh, and he used to wander around in his dressing gown and have long hair and generally be quite extravagant. And, and Apicius is said to be one of his. Um, he, he had earned Mycenas's patronage and then the other character who he's quite often associated with is Sejanus who was a um, for a long time was kind of almost co-regent with the emperor Tiberius Um, he was he was quite a powerful self-made man um, who ended up over scheming and uh, his his downfall led to 
he he got executed, his family all got executed, and uh, Apicius comes in comes up in relation to him that it's possibly his Apicius's daughter was married to Sejanus. So again, mm. it's, again, we're not entirely sure this is how much of this is true and how much of this is supposition, but he's certainly in the first century at, at the centre of quite a, a rich series of noble uh, noble contacts who may or may not be kind of involved in all these various very Roman scandals. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not it's not entirely sure whether it's that's just because he's a byword for scandalous character. And by, you know, will the right some of the Roman writers might think, well if if we just put a mention of Apicius in here, it will kind of add a bit more of a, you know, spice to this um to Exactly. This yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing changed really the last two thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But he's just he's just an interesting catch. And you and you you I, I found myself a bit like a archaeological detective. I'd sift through all sorts of sources, just trying to find a tantalizing hint of whether he exists, you know, a me- I look for a mention of him here and a mention of him there. Yeah. And it's yeah, it was quite fascinating trying to put it together. Um, yeah, certainly. And obviously one of the obvious sources was his cookbook, mm-hmm. which again is a fantastic collection of recipes. Uh, it's the oldest. I'd, it's not the first cookbook, but it's certainly our oldest surviving cookbook. Exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's the one that survives um, almost intact, I guess. From, yes, yeah, exactly. Well, years ago almost. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's quite a lot of recipes. I think it's about a dozen recipes in that that are attributed to him. So there's um, they'll have, they bear his... I decided... I don't know if this is true or not, but I decided the ones that bore his name were probably ones that originated with him. So there's like um, a Minutel, Apician style, for example, or right. Apician patina, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But then there's all sorts of, this is what added the element of mystery, because there's a number of recipes in there that attributed to, so they'll have, there'll be a recipe that's that bears the name of an emperor that lived long after Apicius died, mm. which, which kind of raised the question of, well, did he actually write this cookbook? And, because the, the assumption is he probably didn't. It's probably a collection of recipes that um, that were pieced together either, you know, long after his death or just kind of came to be by being gathered together into a single volume. Yeah, exactly. When do we speculate that this book was written, the Apicius cookbook? So I think it, it's probably from around the 4th century. So 4th century, yeah, century yeah. AD, so probably yeah. about three or four centuries after Apicius died. Exactly. And then, but it's quite, it's quite hard to tell because the, the two original copies mm-hmm. there's, there's two surviving copies one in the vatican library and one in the library in new york right and but these these originate there not kind of ninth century so quite a long time after that i see i see but the use of latin uh, in the books was vulgar latin yes so uh, yes certainly not um so yeah it's it's vulgar latin which is kind of slang latin it's Latin that would have been used by working classes. The sort of Latin you'd expect to be used in a kitchen in ancient mm. Rome, but certainly not the sort of Latin you'd expect to be used by a kind of upper middle class. Yeah, certainly certainly a cook. Gourmet like a business. Yeah. So not a chef, not a gourmet, not a high class, but a, a slave cook probably in a kitchen. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's one of the assumptions that, uh, the, one of the accepted kind of truths of the cookbook is it, it wasn't written by Apicius, it was written by maybe one slave or it was adapted from the recipes of slaves and quite possibly from a lot of slaves over the years almost yeah. like a collection of you know a collection of recipes that might be passed down from one generation of chefs to the next and slowly added to which is why it's it's got this kind of almost patchwork patchwork feel of you know here's some recipes attributed to this person here's some recipes in the style of this person and then we just I put his yeah. name on the front yeah yeah and yeah exactly you put the name in the front and probably will sell better <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly especially or, or if, you know yeah. if you're a, if you're a roman 
uh, you'll have heard of, I mean, the name Apician. Exactly. Apician was, like I said, was a byword for, for kind of Godmondery for a long time. So, yeah, absolutely. It's like... We don't use that term uh, anymore, sadly. I think we use a lot of Epicurean or Luculian, I guess. Yeah, it's full enough. I think it lasts till maybe the end of the kind of late antiquity, I think. Mm. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it would have been comparable to Epicurean, which we, of course, still use today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yes, man. Uh, <laughs> so many things uh, about the pieces. Have you tried to cook any of his dishes? Oh, yeah, for, for sure. I think a number of them are in the classical cookbook, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The classical cookbook um, offers a lot of recipes from the book of Apicius. So I've tried quite a few of them. Uh, not Obviously, I've tried them with um, success, let's say. Yeah, not <laughs> not initially, but yeah, slowly after a few times and stuff. Yeah, definitely all of them, they were successful, I think. Which ones um, have you enjoyed? Okay, so... Dun, 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 dun. I've done the recipes for the sausages. So there is um, smoked sausages, Lucanicae. Mm-hmm. And another, yeah, and um, the white sausages. So I've done them both. And yeah, they're really tasty recipes, really good. Um, was it the Parthian chicken as well by Apicius? Yeah, Parthian chicken is it's in there. There's another thing that um, I started doing um, ancient uh, Greek and Roman dinners mm-hmm. about five years ago, uh, like a pop-up restaurant type of thing. Okay. And <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started doing like, you know, starter, main, desserts and so on. So one of the starters I made uh, was was with cucumber dressing, which was... Um, oh, yeah, I've made that. Yeah. So, so my take was like, okay, we have um, the Greek rusk, the barley bread from antiquity, we know that. So I, I took the barley bread, the dried barley bread, and I used it with um, the cucumber dressing. And so, yeah, soaks all the juices with the, the liquamen or, or garum with uh, mint, I found wild meat from the mountains. I got that, you know, the original meat, blah, 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 you know, wine, vinegar, and so on. So it soaks. The barley rusk becomes nice and moist. You have the marinated, almost pickled kind of thing, cucumber. And then on top, I put soft um, uh, goat's cheese, um, mm-hmm. like fresh goat's cheese. So it, it's kind of like a, a modern take on the, um, on the Cretan dacos which is with tomato and uh, fresh cheese, or let's say something like bruschetta, like modern-day Italian bruschetta, but with cucumber and cheese. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was really successful, really popular dish. That sounds great. Um, and I guess it's one of the... That kind of speaks to the collection of recipes, I suppose, because they are so multicultural, in a, in a sense. They're, they're, they're clearly taken... Uh, they're yeah. clearly drawing on ingredients and... it recipes from around the Mediterranean and, and beyond. And I think that's, yeah, that sounds very in the spirit of it. Yeah, exactly. Then um, I've tried a few times a salad, catabia, uh, the chicken salad, oh, yeah. which is a bit more complicated to serve at um, 30 or 40 guests. So that's kind of... Uh, um, Did you make there. it authentically? Did you use the... Um, the brains, the, the lamb's brains. I was going to say the brains and the livers and the sweetbreads, isn't it? Ah, sweetbreads. Yeah, sweetbreads. Um, uh, yeah, sweetbreads. Well, I love sweetbreads, so when I do it for myself, I use I use that. So no problem there. Uh, but no, when I served it um, in um, restaurants, <laughs> it was uh, without the sweetbreads and the brains. Yeah, when I, when I cooked it, I was... Uh, uh, like I said, I, am, I, I can be squeamish when it comes to waffle, and most of the time I, I applied an awful filter to... Apicius's recipes. I tend right. to take out the the offer. <laughs> and of course, um, 
almost in every event that I did, we served spiced wine because it's been going on through the ages, actually. The, throughout the whole of Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, they served spiced wine. Conditum paradoxum was... Uh, so I used to make it for any kind of themed night, you know, Roman or Byzantine and so on. So yeah, that was like the aperitif when the guests were coming <laughs> to the dinner. Spiced wine. And it, it works really well with having tasty honey and uh, mustic resin, um, which I can find because I can go to the local delicatessen shops, uh, the Greek ones around London, and I can get mustic from Kios. And you have nice honey and this and that, bay leaves and black pepper, da da da. And yeah, it's um, beautiful. <laughs> I think it's a very nice aperitif and cocktail, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I met. Mm. I, it was the last thing I cooked actually, and it's. I mean, it's his first, the first recipe that appears in Nepissi, so I think it's quite appropriate as the first thing. Mm. And uh, did you? Obviously, you you had the book, the book of Apicius, right? The cooking book. Did you cook um, extensively almost all the recipes, or are, are there too many? I don't. I, there, I are never... too ma- there are too many. The most recent translation is, I think it's yeah, four hundred pages. Oh wow! Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. There's, okay. There's, there are. I probably did count them. I'll maybe I'll tell you afterwards how many there were. Um, <laughs> but there are. I think there's well over. A, there's a few hundred. I think recipes oh, in there. So okay. it's certainly that's, too much. To, that's too much. Yeah. 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 I, t- I tended to focus. I kind of. I needed a, a method in terms mm. of how to. So partly I I'd use because I was trying to tell his story as well. I'd um, I'd find recipes that seem to fit parts of his story. So the spiced spiced wine surprise that you just mentioned, um, I thought fitted with the end kind of the the end of his life. Yeah. There's a there's a, a quite a sentimental recipe. In fact it's the only recipe that has what might be described as kind of a you know, in the same way that a modern cookbook might have a bit of a kind of description to start with, which maybe adds a bit of uh, an emotion or empathy or kind of explanation as to why it's being cooked the only recipe that really does that is is one for bulbs um which talks about um serving them if you're if you're seeking the harbor of venus which makes me kind of think it was uh. it was done possibly for it was possibly he, uh, a recipe associated with, associated with marriage or courtship or, or something yeah like that. yeah yeah for sure yeah it was i mean the way you described the recipe on your thesis it was quite um intriguing basically so you you cooked it and um there was something missing and then you put it in the oven and roasted yeah and then it the all came together yeah, yeah exactly so i mean i used shallots i think it was because it because again it's I mean, uh, one of the things you'll quickly realize if you if you go to the original recipes of apicius um is they're very vague i'm sure you found this there's yeah there's certainly no no measurements and no cooking times and quite often not really a, a full ingredients list. So, for example, the recipe for bulbs, I mean, it's just called bulbs, but it says boil the bulbs, and it doesn't say what sort of bulb. Um, right. I, I kind of assumed uh, the Romans ate quite a lot of different edible bulbs, like edible hyacinth bulbs and that sort of thing. Ah. But for a lot of the times, a lot of, I think you, you're probably a bit more dedicated than I am, but a lot of the times um, I was either pressed for time or, uh, or, or circumstance in Norwich, I guess, and... Um, I'd have to make do. So part of the fun was trying to work out how, in what way to, which which corners to cut, which substitutes <laughs> to make. So I ended up, I think I used shallots in the end uh, for that one. But it was it was this very tasty recipe in the end. It, it was kind of involved boiling these shallots up with all sorts of different 
uh, honey and vinegar and mm. obviously garum and um, spices. But yeah. it, came across, it came out as this kind of quite gloopy mess. And then, I, yeah, as you said, I put it in the, I think I was roasting, I was making one of the roast pork dinners as well, uh, dishes at the same time. And I put it in, it was, I just put it in the oven and it, it kind of came together. I kind of wonder if that's almost how the cookbook was meant to be used. It was kind of like a list of suggestions and guidances to from like one expert to another. So if you were a, a Roman chef or a Roman cook with this cookbook, you'd, you'd obviously fill in the gaps yourself or you'd go, well, of course this needs to go in the oven or of course this... I'll use these shallots instead of these hyacinth bulbs. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that sounds um, plausible. And um, yeah, like and, a- and then the other, the, the kind of the other thing I that I did to to kind of whittle down which recipes to to go for. So the ones not not necessarily the ones that told maybe told a story, but with the ones named after him. Because like I said there's about there's only about a dozen that that have mm. his name, and I kind of thought, well, that's that seems as good a, a good a way as any to to pick because it, it's from quite a that gives you quite a, a good slice from uh, slice through the cookbook. So you've got things like um, Episcian conchicla, which is uh, some sort of, it's like a, a dish involving pork and peas. Mm. I mean, there's about three different types, and lucanicae and pork meatballs. And, and that was that was quite a good introductory dish for me. And then you've got things like the patina, the minutal, which is like a stew. Yes. Uh, and, and I mean, again, I was leaving out the testicles and the sweet... <laughs> So Sainsbury's didn't, Sainsbury's didn't have <laughs> strange that <laughs> exactly. yeah my, my Sainsbury's doesn't have it either so I'll be back after this short break ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Um, but um, yeah, you're mentioning the the pork and the peas. I mean, to anybody that cooked once or twice in their life, I mean, it sounds like a great combination already. Peas and pork. I mean, we we have something similar nowadays, like pea and ham soup, for example. So it doesn't seem to be out of. It doesn't seem to be too alien, really, does it? And I think I think there's. I mean, it helps that there's so many recipes to choose from that you can. There's there's a lot. I mean, like I said, there's a lot to be, there's unfamiliar as soon as you, if you're used to a modern recipe, when you see these ancient recipes, but then there's a lot, a lot of familiar things like the pork and peas. Um, you know, it's, it's cooking peas in a, in a saucepan with diff- a couple of different types of ham uh, with some spices, most of which are familiar. I mean, you know, it's ground pepper, it's oregano, it's dill, it's coriander, it's, it's all stuff that we would, I mean, it's only occasionally you have to go out of your comfort zone and get mastic, for example, or lovage or stuff like that. Yeah, lovage is the one that um, it's difficult to find the seeds. Um, so Although celery seeds, celery seeds is apparently quite similar. That's what I ended yeah. up using as a substitute quite a lot Great. of the time. Good uh, tip. Uh, yeah, I'm using celery seeds uh, sometimes, but also I'm growing lavage in my garden. <laughs> so, so I've got, the, I'm going to that uh, length. But then, and then stuff like the, the, the garum, I think you've talked you've talked about this before the the kind of the Thai fish sauce it's mm. probably probably not exactly the same but poss- quite it's possible it, it adds the same kind of umami texture that I imagine you'd have got from the Roman equivalent yeah yeah I mean I, I've done a whole episode about garum uh, which um, covers all the possibilities and all the ways that uh, whatever the archaeologists and the food historians you know found and they came up with and obviously. What we know from the modern Thai fish sauce and Vietnamese fish sauce, and also I think Sally Granger did um, like um, more more in depth, um, you know, trying to find out about Garmore and and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I, I was based a lot on her research about Garum and how it's familiar to you know the modern fish sauce and so on, and also the Nestor- the restaurant Noma in uh, Denmark. Uh, one of the, maybe the best restaurant in the world, apparently. They do a lot of different garums. So they have a book about fermentation. And in the book about fermentation, they have um, about 10 recipes of garum, how to make your own garum at home. And yeah, fish garum and shrimp garum and even meat garum. And they, they've gone to other extreme lengths of <laughs> of making this uh, fermented. Um, did, you, did you have a go? Economy. Did you try and ferment your own garum? I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> I, that was where I drew the line as well. Yeah. And making my own garum, I thought it might test um, the bounds of my relationship a little bit too much. Yeah, because I mean, I was cook- I was forced I was forcing my partner to eat um, <laughs> to eat a lot of this Roman cooking, and he's sometimes suspicious on <laughs> the best of times. Yes, that's probably you can imagine the. You can imagine the comments from the neighbours if you had all the, the fermenting uh, fish guts out the back of the out in the back garden. Oh God, yes, um, I'm looking forward to it actually. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of my regrets. Is, is I didn't really get a chance to delve into uh, Roman bread. I think that would mm. be quite. A, I, there's quite a few recipes. I don't think there's there's not really any recipes in Apicius for uh, bread beyond the the flat bread. That I think right. it's used on one occasion, but there's, there certainly are recipes for Roman bread floating around um, that I'd, I'd have loved to have tried out as part of this project, but I never got around to. I think possibly one to come back to. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I definitely haven't done enough uh, with Roman breads or ancient. It's like a whole episode there, maybe ancient breads. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I think not only episode. Yeah, I want to actually do some, you know, different recipes, experiment with different yeasts. Like, I think they used a lot of uh, wine yeasts or grape yeast, which was obviously more easily available in a way. Uh, so much wine. Yeah, I think a lot of the. I mean, I think a lot of the. You can see that in some of the. Some of the recipes, a lot of it is obviously byproducts of various things. I think a lot of the sauces, one of the things Apicius is famous for is, is his sauces, although it's not entirely in evidence in the in the actual cookbook. But I think a lot of that was was uh, sauces that would then go with leftover meat. So they might, you know, mm. if, they, if they've done a big, I guess like we do today, if you've done a big pork pork roast, for example, you'll have a lot of leftovers. So yeah. it's, it's, it's then maybe sauces that are used with the leftovers yeah so i mean that's yeah one of the two the two things that i can't i think it was appian one of the later writers kind of comments that he's famous for is sauces and cakes both of which um are kind of lacking actually in his his, his cookbook certainly cakes is apparently he was famous for his cheesecakes mm. and unfortunately we don't have a recipe for cheesecakes I, I made a couple of his sauces so i was trying to cook mullet because obviously in in homage to his uh, the kind of story about him bidding in for the, the fish market in the fish market exactly yeah. and and there's not so many recipes for mullet but there are recipes for sauces to go with mullet and one of the ones i made was a dill sauce uh, which is quite quite tasty actually it was it was just um kind of pepper which seems to be in all the in all the recipes in Apicius. there's a lot of pepper involved i think it was quite a new ingredient at the time it was quite fashionable yeah so there's pepper there's dill seeds there's oil and vinegar and wine and then a little bit of garum, of course. And that's just, again, that's it's just quite a simple combination of ingredients. That's a familiar. We, we can all, we've all cooked. We've all prepared um, kind of dressings and sauces like that. Mm. That's uh, So that that was one of the ones I, I quite liked. That was quite tasty, especially with the mullet. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the, um, the other one I made was one that went with, his one of his pork dishes uh, which was it's called offilai which kind of means a sm- kind of small pieces of meat ah, okay uh, so it's it's probably a pork belly i i think i used a pork belly and it's um uh, dry roasted uh, and then put in the oven and then the, the sauce is made out of um again pepper lovage cumin again cumin comes up in a lot of these recipes uh, and then liguamen uh, and then wine or more garum was added, and then again, that's quite. A, it, it was quite a tasty combination of of ingredients, and then the the meat was chopped up once it had roasted, or kind of almost like pulled pork, I think, or slightly yeah. kind of sliced into cubes, and then it was all mixed up in this sauce, and and that was quite a that was quite a tasty one as well. It's not quite made the cut in our household as, as something I cook regularly, but it's the sort of thing I could imagine cooking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's always quite interesting. I don't, I, I suspect you, I don't know if you found this when you were trying the garum out and cooking the garum quite often when you were when you're cooking with the garum it creates this horrendous stench when you put it in the like a hot pan yeah um, and, and it quite overwhelms the, the kitchen quite quite literally in terms of the smell absolutely to the, point where you're, to the point where you're like i'm not entirely sure i want to eat this but then when it comes together with a lot of the ingredients it's it it just adds this really subtle undercurrent of flavor which i found quite that was one of the more interesting things with the sort with a lot of the sauces in Apicius was the was kind of this just the flavor combination was interesting in in, in a good way it was it, it, I, I didn't I don't think I cooked anything that was horrible Great. it was all surprisingly tasty which I probably shouldn't be surprised at but well no I mean it's 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 a period of 2000 years afterwards so tastes and um, you know the taste buds change and people yes. the way they cook and they eat change so yeah I mean it could have been completely and utterly repulsive but um, 
it hasn't been. And <laughs> I think it's kind of surprising in a way. Um, yeah, it was always a pleasant surprise. I mean, it, yeah. it probably helps that I, I had this. I was quite self-selecting in terms of what I cooked. I wasn't setting out to cook everything. So obviously yeah. I was picking I was picking things that looked quite nice. I wasn't the the ones with the brain you know, the pig brains, I I left them to the side, for example. Mm. So I there was a certain element of, you know, I'd introduced a bias that I was probably going to be right. picking ingredients that sounded right. tasty, like the ro- the roast pork and sauce. That sounds delicious already. Yes. There was more chance that it was going to be tasty than perhaps if you'd set out to cook everything, which I suspect you might come across a few dishes that you probably made your, would make your stomach turn <laughs> or might involve literally stomach. <laughs> I am a very adventurous person in terms of cooking and eating, so I like most of the things. Yeah, go on about the patina pisciana. So, I mean, a normal patina, there's, I guess they must have been, they're probably one of the more popular dishes given how many recipes there are for them. And, and they tend to be like a, you know, a pan of meat or a pan of vegetables and then you break the, you seem to break the eggs into it and, kind of cook it up a bit like an omelette, a bit like a custard. But then the, the Episcian patina, it's something else entirely, I think. It's, it, does, it definitely involves these, uh, you know, a large amount of meat. It uses cooked udder, uses fi- fish, chicken, um, fig peckers, which I think are some sort of like a thrush, you know, like a little bird or something. Probably yeah. cooked whole, pretty cooked whole, I guess. <laughs> these are all diced up and then there's all sorts of spices going there and then there's eggs of course, as well. But then the interesting thing about this is after you've cooked all this chopped meat up, and it's layered up in a dish um, with uh, flatbreads on top between the layers. And it's it's so from it, it's so much like a lasagna. I mean, apart from possibly the cooked udder and flaked fish. But in, con- in kind of concept, this, you know, creating this dish of layers, uh, d- I mean, doubly so when you uh, realise that the word for this these flatbreads is, is lagana, which just, I, I, I don't know it enough about the history of pasta to know if this is kind of a pre, uh, you know predecessor an ancestor of lasagna but yeah. it certainly it certainly looks like it is in terms of the concept yeah yeah certainly yeah it's very interesting i mean it kind of almost makes you think that there were things similar to pasta before so yeah i think that there was um, an element that um, i think ancient greeks and ancient romans had that pasta type of things, proto-pasta. And I think it was also invented in China with noodles. So I think we had two different parts of the world that invented uh, this thing. Kind of parallel evolution. Kind of. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, I mean, this is one of my, the Episcian patina is one of my regrets. That's one of the ones that got away that I didn't get around <laughs> to cooking. Just cause, I mean, just because it's quite an ambitious, it's one of the ambitious recipes in there, I yeah. think. One of the um, higher higher ability ones, I'd have thought. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think um, we should uh, try it soon then. <laughs> yes, maybe next time if you can, if you do another one of your Roman cookery evenings. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll have the patina, apiciana, <laughs> in your honour. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind. Of, I mean, it's kind of an interesting. I always think it's. I mean, Roman cuisine is such a big topic anyway isn't it that this is very much we're talking about a pissy and roman cuisine it's it's through that kind of middle class upper middle class aspirational lens which probably i suspect doesn't bear much relation to ge- roman cuisine in general but it's certainly because it's the, the cookbook that survived it's the one we end up looking at mm. there, there are uh, there is a cookbook called roman cookery who i can't remember who that's by mark uh, but that that tries to get to Roman cookery beyond Apicius. Um, but right. I think it's such a it's such a fascinating um, 
such a fascinating topic and I think people nowadays are quite experimental when it comes to cooking I think people are a lot more interested in food in general and trying things out than maybe they used to be and as well people are quite interested in the ancient world I think it's quite a quite a good time for people to be trying to experiment with ancient recipes and ancient cuisine and because we have so much um well so so many of Apicius's recipes survive and as a result have been studied and interpreted primarily by Sally Sally Granger it's quite an easy if people do want to like just try cooking Roman food or uh, one one type of Roman food I think there's worse places to start than Apicius maybe (laughs) they start with the Apician patina but but yeah there are plenty of other um, simpler recipes and um, accessible and also the ingredients you can find them nowadays it's yeah especially yeah not uh, you don't even have to go as far as like a a, a deli or a specialist cook shop a, mm. a lot of the most of the most of the ingredients i found quite happily in sainsbury's or or the local supermarket it was i did not have to go particularly out of my way to to, to find this stuff and you have you have to slightly you have to be quite flexible when it comes to if we're using the original re- ingredient a recipe in terms of guessing what in what quantities but like i said sally granger has done a fantastic job in a couple of cookbooks now of, of distilling it down and working out through experimentation how much of stuff to use and even the um utensils and equipment used is it, it's stuff you have in your kitchen already obviously the romans wouldn't have used a, a a fan oven but no. there's you know they'd, they'd have probably had an oven in some capacity or something that would approx you know that will lead to the same end result as sticking in the oven for half an hour yeah yeah I th- yeah i think they did inv- in well i think it was the ancient greeks that they inv- invented the oven as, as we know it you know with a closed door and so on so th- i'm sure they would have the romans took the concept further and improved it and for sure they would have Plenty. Not not every household, obviously, is something very expensive and very energy consuming. But definitely, you would have markets and outdoor uh, food stalls and this kind of places that there will be plenty of ovens for cooking. Um, yeah, for masses basically. So yeah, I think uh, it's it's not million miles away. Most of the stuff that we can do nowadays, and compared to what they did two thousand years ago. And if you yeah, I mean, if you go to the British Museum and see. The treasures from different parts of the Roman Britain, and you you can see their kitchen utensils, and you see what they used, and the, uh, all the tableware and cookware, and almost all of them they have something familiar, something that um, fu- fundamentally hasn't changed really. Yeah, and it, yeah, even the I suspect again you could probably have a whole episode on Roman dining and Roman dining rooms and dining culture, but fundamentally part of the fact that they're lying on their fronts yeah. on their sides to eat the the concept of a three-course meal is very familiar to us the the kind of con- the, the sort of dinner which comes with many different dishes is familiar to us it's it might not be how we eat every night but it's certainly you know if you go to a ta- out for tapas or for chinese the concept of having lots of dishes with lots of different foodstuffs of uh, kind of concoctions yeah the, that's that's quite a familiar concept to us. That's not a, that's not an alien, that's not an alien thing. That's you know it's familiar. Exactly. Yeah. If you kind of turned up at a Roman dining table, you would know what to do. Possibly, <laughs> mostly. Oh, I suppose they had different names. How? What was the name for the first course? Mm. Mm, Top of my head. <laughs> Gustatio. Gustatio. Yeah, Gustatio. Yeah. Yeah, Gustatio. Gustatio. And then the main course is Mensa Primae. Mensa Primae. Yeah, and then Mensa Secundae, 
which was the kind of desserts. Mm. So it's, 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 as you'd expect, gustacio is the, you know, the first course, and that's the appetizers, the the start of the, the kind of stuff to cleanse and stimulate your palate. Yeah. Wet your yeah. appetite. <laughs> and the main course, the mensai primi, primi is the, um, that's the main course. That's what you'd expect to get your vegetables and your meat and your fish and all sorts of things. And then the mensai secundi is the, it's your dessert. It's, it's again quite familiar. There's something familiar about that as a as a concept. Yeah, very familiar. Yeah, exactly. Everything sounds um, quite modern in a way. I mean, and I don't know how much that is us projecting. You know, it's it's recognizable to us, so therefore we're you know we're kind of homing in on the recognizable stuff and and ignoring the stuff that's not familiar, like the dining couches or the <laughs> yeah, true, <laughs> or the watered down wine. I guess and that's water, another yes. thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, haven't tried that one. <laughs> I guess in that respect, I'm <laughs> barbarian. You'd yeah. a barbarian, I think, couldn't you? You'd drink your wine neat, unmixed. Um, but on uh, my defense, I have always a glass of water next to my glass of wine. So oh, there you go. It's, sp- it's like the spiritual successor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm reading now that yeah, diced watermelon dressed with mint and pieces of cheese and bread. I mean, that's... That's something like you'll find as a, an entree in a, in a mm-hmm. canapes in a modern table, really. Watermelon meat, yeah, perfect. <laughs> it sounds modern. Yeah, exactly. And there's the um, some of the some of the ones. There's there's a recipe for it's like eggs. It's a bit like you know deviled eggs. Deviled eggs. I don't, yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's very similar very similar things that we use as starters. I just I love it. I love, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I find it. So fascinating. It's, I always think it quite, it's quite interesting. I've, I've been to a couple of, there's a couple of places I've seen. I've never been to one yet. It's one of my goals. And there's a couple of restaurants named Apicius, uh, both in this country and in Italy and actually in Tokyo. I've come, I've happened to walk past them. Really? I always, I always think that's quite interesting that they just, there's still, there's still that kind of legacy. <laughs> of, you know, even though we might not use the word Apician anymore, the kind yeah. of, still that, uh, you know, that concept that Apicius was this, this gourmand, this kind of, and you know, grand ancestor of, of haute cuisine that still still lives with us, even if it's ever so slightly in the names of re- a few restaurants here and there. I always find that quite interesting. I always think um, the uh, there's a later Roman writer, Tertullian, uh, refers to Apicius as the patron saint of cooks. And I always think that's quite a ni- that's quite a nice way of thinking about him. Possibly, you know, the, even if he, for whatever we don't know about him, there's certainly enough smoke. But there must be, a, you know, there must be enough fire of um, uh, that he must, in some way, have been to, uh, involved in cookery or gastronomy or, or or cuisine in some fashion to for his name to become attached to, you know, the cookbook and then to have it, you know, this reputation that's survived two thousand years. Yeah, exactly. I could talk about Apicius for <laughs> great length of time. I find it quite an interesting character, and the Roman cuisine. I find I just find it it's just interesting. It's one of my kind of pet projects i guess yeah yeah i mean the so one of the things obviously they had um, different kinds of vegetables uh, obviously they had onions but as you said they, ha- they had lots of different edible bulbs you said yeah uh, what yeah, else high, yeah hyacinth. hyacinth yeah what else did they have do you have you found out really any other interesting edible bulbs that they had yeah so the i mean they they ate all sorts of bulbs really so quite a few of the flowering bulbs that we would Obviously, I don't. We wouldn't eat anymore. So the bulbs of the lily and the right. squill. The squill. Do you think so? Yeah. Um, ah. Which, uh, and certainly, 
in some varieties are edible. I don't want to say that all edible, all lily bulbs are edible, but uh, and then of course they still they choose uh, like garlic bulbs. I think would still would still crop up in Roman cooking. I think, and then uh, the the grape hyacinth is the type of bulb that gets that they consider they consider an aphrodisiac, which I think is why it was probably the bulb uh, used in that in, in the recipe for bulbs I mentioned earlier, which, uh-huh, which talks uh-huh. about the uh, talks about Venus. Yeah, and they, they they're actually still the highest the grape hyacinth is still used in it comes up as part of meze in southern Italy and Greece. I think it's. Uh, is it vol- Volvi, I think, in Greece, I think it's called? Ah, uh, yes, yes, and, yes. Um, well, Lampascioni, I think, is in, in southern Italy. Ah, uh, well, yeah. That, you see, you forget these things because obviously I've lived here for so long and, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. Now you mention it. I think they had parsnips, right? Parsnips, uh, which I don't think we eat nowadays in, in Greece or I don't think I've seen them in Italy either. Um, no, it's not. You, you don't tend to associate it, do you, with them? Um, Mediterranean cuisine yeah. certainly. I think of parsnips as kind of hearty northern northern dishes, and I think parsnips were they they were imported from Germany originally. I think right, right. I, th- I think it's one of the uh, Tiberius, uh, the, em- the second emperor Tiberius um, imported parsnips. It was his um, luxury or something. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, he was he, some of his luxuries leave a lot to be desired, but he, he had a thing for <laughs> he had a thing for cucumbers as well. I think. And then ca- uh, carrots were used, but um, mod- uh, only modern carrots are orange. I think in Roman days, carrots would have been purple, or a variety of colours, but they'd have associated purple. Right. Uh, purple carrots is when, when you think of a carrot. But but yeah, they had a they had a huge range of vegetables that some of which we still recognise, and some we probably wouldn't. Yeah. Just because yeah. tastes change, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's I mean that's another interesting interesting thing that I find with um, ancient Roman and Greek cuisine. That you have all these th- things that they fell out of fashion, and then they crop up somewhere else, and then maybe there's a little local place that they still do do it, but you haven't heard of, and then somebody else says, "Oh yeah, yeah," but it's still going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> did you find um, with Lupercalia, for example? Did you because that that crops up in Apicius quite a few times? Did you, did you find they were quite familiar when you because you made them, didn't you? And- yeah. Mm. Um, not not all the ingredients, not all the ingredients, but um, certainly the, u- the use of leek and uh, pepper was uh, extremely familiar. Something that you know it was part of most of the sausages that um, I eat from Greece, or when we do it in, in Greece, you know the traditional village sausages that are with leek, black pepper, pork meat, and yeah, smoked you know, or cured for a few days, and so on. so that was very very familiar. It was something that um, it wouldn't be out of place in some small village in Greece <laughs> or southern Italy, for that matter. Yeah, one of the probably the, the most extreme lengths I went to for when I was researching this project was I, I did a butchery course, right, with a with a local um, kind of butchers and charcuterie uh, in Norfolk. So I, I learned how to make sausages from scratch, but also how to, you know, properly carve up a, a pig and all sorts of things like that, which was, there's some, I don't know, there's some, it's, it's one of the reasons I wouldn't necessarily advocate going to that length, but there's something about actually getting hands on with the recipes that I think lets you understand um, the kind of mindset, right? the people that have written them, the, the people that were eating them, just because it's, there's an awful lot of difference between us and people that lived 2000 years ago, but when you're in the kitchen, you're cooking things largely in the same way. You know, you're carving meat or you're preparing meat. It's fundamentally unchanged on a mm. certain level than it was 2,000 years ago. When you're 
we're still eating with the same, I know we said, you know, tastes have changed, but we're fundamentally eating with the same equipment, quite literally with our, te- with our tongues, with our uh, taste buds. That, you know, when you when the recipe is asking for pepper and cumin and parsley and bay leaf and all that sort of stuff, it's the, I think it connects us on that kind of across time because we're experiencing the same thing as they were experiencing. And there's not many things that you can do that with. No, for sure. the agents. I agree with that totally. I think that's uh, that's the most most fascinating thing, I guess, uh, from from you know studying these recipes and actually cooking them. Yeah, it connects you with the past totally. It's like a time machine. I don't think there's another equivalent that takes you so close to the ancient past. No, than... definitely not, because the, that that experience is so their experience is so far removed from ours on so many different levels. There's so many different assumptions and contexts that we don't have that they would have had. But even going to ancient Rome or to like a Roman site is so different than we can't we can't assume that they would have experienced it in the same way that we do because it's such a long time ago yeah but with food I think it, it it does act as a bridge it's one of the I think you're right it's one of the only things that does connect us so closely in such a yeah in, in such an intimate way exactly yeah as you say intimate way yeah fantastic Thank you so much uh, for joining. That's okay. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope you're keeping well and uh, staying safe uh, at home. <laughs> yes, mostly spending time in my kitchen, baking and cooking, actually. Excellent. Seems appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think everybody does that now. Uh, what else can you do? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, apart from obviously doing a podcast about uh, food. <laughs> yeah, when we're not cooking food, we're talking about food. Have a lovely evening. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me on. That's yeah. That's, yeah you're welcome. It's good, it uh, good to talk. Thanks yeah, yes, exactly. As well. It's always I, I, it's a highlight of my podcast diary. <laughs> Great. Okay. Have a lovely evening. See you. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Speak to you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. And thanks, of course, to Andrew Kenrick for his, uh, uh, for his in-depth discussion in the life and works of Apicius. Remember, you can get the podcasts early and ad-free if you sign on Patreon and become a member of the Delicious Legacy. And um, if you want, um, you can leave a rating and a review on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. See you soon with a special celebrating episode of uh, the four years of the Delicious Legacy and 100 episodes. Take care. See you soon. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 